Hey, hey, Cassandra, we're uh, we're about to record. You should sit down. Norman. Yes. What do your elf eyes see? Uh, um, our our mics. No, no, you're supposed to say they're taking the podcast to Isengard. We, we've 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 been there all, several times yeah, but already. No, like for reals this time. <laughs> what do you, what do you what do you mean for reals this time? Well, you know the trees and the orcs and the 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 wizard and we're we're taking the podcast to Isengard. Will there be stupid fat hobbits? Yes. Okay, I'm in. Oh, okay. That was easy. <laughs> I was I had this whole sales pitch that you know there's potatoes and you, you know, got to boil them, <laughs> mash them, <laughs> stick them in a stew. There, there were also going to be, you know, some crunchable horses. Um, we're back. <laughs> With season two, our yes. continuing coverage of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. This time we're talking about Two Towers. Join us on Dueling Genre every Monday through Friday to talk about Lord of the Rings one minute at a time. We're from Lord of the Rings Minute. Leave now and, and never come back. No, please come back. <laughs> everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character and a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week I'm joined by John Bell to discuss storytelling in video games. Welcome, John. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, periodically uh, we do special episodes. Sometimes they're games, and sometimes we just kind of talk about a uh, an aspect of storytelling. In the past, we've done one on fan fiction. I know we have one lined up in the future to talk about animation and where that's at in uh, modern storytelling. And this week we're talking about video games. So, uh, John, how... Did you end up on this episode of the protagonist podcast? <laughs> yes. um, if I remember, I think I suggested it to you. Um, I let's see, we were hanging out with a mutual friend playing video games, VR video games, and uh, I said we should talk about storytelling in video games. I know it's kind of a broad topic, and you know, there's a, there's a lot of ways you could go with that. But uh, I know you guys have done the manga episode, or was there? A, Oh, I think, let's see, we did, did we do a, a full manga, just, oh, we did an anime, or a manga an special, anime special, an anime special, yeah, but anyway, uh, yeah, and, and that actually helped us to crack a, a code or, or a nut that we've been, like, been bothering us since the beginning, where we wanted to do a video game episode, where we talked about it, because it is a really fascinating form of storytelling that is so distinct from other um, modes of storytelling, it's very different from comic books or TV or film or novels, but back when Todd was the co-host, we never figured out how we could possibly do it <laughs> because uh, modern video game storytelling, you got to commit. <laughs> the time commitment is is definitely there and it's big. Um, and, you know, when you're listening to audiobooks, you can kind of do that as you're doing other things. But yeah, video games require generally more attention as you're playing them. And yeah, so I, I see why it'd be hard to, to do a single game for a, an episode and the time crunch that you guys have here yeah so you you i i guess what i wanted to reveal is you did this to yourself by suggesting this episode and i was like great you need to come on and help me talk about it because i don't know enough i think i would qualify myself more as a casual gamer where like i've my family has all almost always had like a nintendo system around but that's it whereas i know like hardcore gamers they're much more familiar with all the different systems and the pluses and minuses that are going as to whether they're um valuing graphics or you know what what it is that each one does better than the other one and i kind of know what the different zelda games and mario games are (laughs) which i'm pretty sure does not qualify me as a hardcore gamer yeah i'm i'm not sure that uh i would qualify myself as a hardcore gamer just because that's a scary thing to, to call yourself because somebody else is always going to say, no, you're not. Yeah. There, there you haven't. Are... <laughs> there's a lot of gatekeeping. Yes. There's a lot of harder core gamers always, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I guess as far as how I came to it and how I've done this to myself, I, I've, we've, I mean, one of my first memories is uh, Christmas morning getting an NES. And I don't remember exactly how old I was, but I must have been four or five because I have a vague memory of it and um, sort of have been taken by video games ever since i'm now a productive member of society i think (laughs) but i still try to make a little bit of time to play games in in the little bit of free time i have um and yeah i I, i'm sort of fascinated by 
the evolution of games and both storytelling and, and gameplay and the interplay between the two. Don't have really academic qualifications to have this discussion, but I think we'll let it slide, right? Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> Experience is pretty is a great great qualifier uh, for for this kind of discussion, and, and I think it's also interesting. One thing that we've kind of danced around in saying, like, well, I don't want to be called a hardcore gamer, and you mentioned the gatekeeping, <laughs> and then you said I'm a productive member of society. Like, there's a stigma about oh, yeah. individuals who. Uh, their primary form in which they seek entertainment is through video games, right? The, the, sure. Uh, living in parents' basements is is one of the stereotypes, right? <laughs> I, I didn't even realize I was playing into that stereotype as I said all of that, but I, <laughs> I, I guess I definitely was. And uh, Well, and it's something you want to resist, because I don't think it's a fair stereotype. Yeah. I, to me, it, it's similar to any other form of entertainment. Similar to how comic books, I feel like, were still are stigmatized to an extent, but we're very much more so you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago. And I think that, uh, you know, obviously anything can be taken to an extreme where it's bad. And I think there's, there's probably something about the way video games are made that, that taps into the dopamine release in your brain. That's maybe a little more addictive than some of these others. And, but for the average person who can do things in moderation, it's it's just the same as using yeah. using your time to read a book or anything like that. So yes, let's fight that stigma. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I, I don't think it's a fair stereotype uh, in terms of how how broad a brush gets painted with anyone who likes video games. Uh, I'm sure there are people who are kind of antisocial and uh, you know uh, and are very solitary in their lives that that engage with a lot of video games. But I, like you said, that's true of any fandom, right? Yep. Um, and and so we want to disregard that stigma, and uh, but also I we want to talk about in this uh, discussion the really unique things that can be done in video games that are not available in other forms of storytelling. Like the the closest you get to some of what can be done in video games, I think are. Um, Recently, my kids found a choose-your-own-adventure book. And that's about, like, as close as you can get in a novel to, to what video games kind of do naturally. Yeah. And it's a really forced exercise for a novel to try and allow the reader to be engaged in the storytelling that way. Uh, but it's something that happens very uh, fluidly in, in, on the video game side of storytelling. Yeah, I've heard that they, you know, people have experimented with movies making sort of choose-your-own-adventure movies as well. With DVDs now, they can, you know, they, they can yeah. play that sort of game. I haven't really... I mean, I guess I've seen... there. I guess if we're going to talk about video games, there was uh, actually a kind of a subgenre as uh, optical media was coming into play uh, in video games, uh, predominantly on, like, the Sega CD and the 3DO. I think it was the 3DO. Anyway, some of those early CD-based systems were basically choose-your-own-adventure movies that there's really grainy FMV video and you make a choice. And, uh, <clears throat> maybe the fam- most famous one of those was in the arcade called, I think it was Dragon's Quest, where it's Don Bluth animation. I think it's Dragon's Lair. Dragon's Lair, okay. Yep. Producer Andrew jumping in <laughs> with some, some deep video game knowledge there. Yeah, uh, yeah you're right. Dragon's oh, Quest is... That, to me, that's animation knowledge. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, once you get Don Bluth pulled in. <laughs> yeah. I should correct myself. Dragon's Quest was in the one of the earliest Japanese RPGs came out for the NES and I think had a slightly different name in Japan. Anyway, as I'm saying here, I have I have knowledge of some video games, maybe not. Yeah. Well, like <laughs> an encyclopedic they... knowledge, so um, similar to you, my first memory of Video, well, I guess I do have a very faint memory of an Atari system that sometimes worked <laughs> in our household. But it wasn't like, oh, this is, you know, something that... I mean, Atari games are famously frustrating uh, to, to play, uh, many of them. And so as a young kid, that wasn't as enticing as when we got an, uh, an NES system. And I remember it for... I want to say it was a Christmas as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I definitely remember getting Tetris. That's the the game I like vividly remember. Which isn't so much a storytelling video game, no. uh, but it's definitely an iconic... Uh, yeah. you know, it's, it's in the, if there's a video game Hall of Fame, I'm sure there is. Tetris belongs in it. Yeah. <laughs> There's there's pretty interesting stuff. You could do a whole podcast about Tetris and its history and oh, it's, it's all and, over the place. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and then the systems that I have owned and so I've put in the most time for me playing were the original NES. We skipped the Super NES. We had the Nintendo sixty four, the GameCube, and then a Wii, and now we have a Switch. So we skipped the Wii U, which I think everyone basically skipped the Wii U. I didn't. Oh, you didn't? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) That one was not a smash hit for Nintendo. No, it wasn't. Um, But I've never had, from the PlayStation side of things, any of those systems. I've played them at friend's house a couple times, Mm -hmm. you know, when I was in junior high or high school. I've never done the Xbox. 
Um, what are the other big? I guess there's Sega Genesis back in the early console wars. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we we had an NES. I mentioned that um, when I was maybe ten or so, I saved up enough money by mowing lawns, and uh, my parents paid us to paint our paint our house and things like that. Uh, and we I bought I found a Sega Genesis at a garage sale. I, I bought that. Um, so I had one of those that had the Sega CD and the 32X attachment, which are, uh, you know, kind of deep cuts in the video game world now. <laughs> um, so that made me kind of a Sega fan. We also got an N64, um, and then, uh, other systems I've had, I had a Sega Saturn, I had a Sega Dreamcast. Um, oh, that's right. Dreamcast was a thing. Dreamcast was one that came out, had a really strong start and then fizzled out really bad and was the end of sega's console making yeah now they just uh develop games and license them to yep. other consoles right exactly yep um i had a playstation 3 uh an original xbox um what is playstation up to now are they up to four Four. yep the five is like kind of they, they've both microsoft and sony have kind of said we have codename projects I think they're, they're waiting for the wave of the Switch interest to die down mm-hmm. a little, and then they'll they'll drop those on the market. Yeah. And then, yeah, like I mentioned earlier, I got a Wii U, um, which although did very poorly, has some really cool games. Um, the mechanics there, I, I don't think I wanted to bring any of them up today because they're more mechanically interesting than narratively interesting. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but yeah, cool console that didn't do very well. There's quite a few of those, though. Around. Oh, yeah. Is it, so I... Um, <laughs> Outside of, like, personally playing these games, I, I've watched a couple documentaries on video games. Discovery Channel had a series that I watched, and there was one on Netflix that I tried to look up today, but it's gone. It was, you know, it's out of their library. Mm-hmm. But there's one I watched a couple years ago, and I read a book on the history of Super Mario. Like, it was really the history of Nintendo, but it, it was called Super Mario, How Nintendo Conquered America, I think. Uh-huh. And that was, like, really interesting because it, it did get into all the different consoles that Nintendo had to be reacting to. Because for all of these video games, none of them are being created in a vacuum. No. They're all reacting to what they themselves have done and trying to build on that and also seeing what other companies are bringing out. And they kind of stake out different um, niches of the fractured audience for video games. So, like, Nintendo tries to claim the family-friendly uh, market, but they're not going as hard into graphics. Whereas Xbox, is the Xbox the one that goes most graphic-heavy, or is that PlayStation? Xbox and PlayStation kind of both compete there. Um, Nintendo definitely is. They have uh, you know less horsepower in their hardware, mm-hmm. but but you know try to use it in an artistic way that is family friendly, generally speaking. And they also try and innovate in how the controls work. Oh, certainly, yeah, yeah, more, yeah. More, more, so. more so than than the other big guys. Yeah. In addition to consoles, um, my my dad worked in technology, brought home various pieces of computers. I built my first computer when I was. I think 13 and have kind of been into PC gaming ever since then as well. So I, I probably do that more so than console gaming. Uh, even still, uh, there's, you know, I try to just follow where the good games are generally, mm-hmm. but, but, um, I have a soft spot for the, uh, the tweak ability and, and, you know, the ability to, to have a little bit more ownership of the PC games, the modding and things like that is, is really fun. Oh yeah. And that's something I definitely want to talk and talk about. And I do remember, uh, with, with PC games, I have a, a deep fondness for monkey Island. Oh, monkey Island is great. Yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was one in our, our early home PC that, that was one of the games we had. Uh, yeah. and I spent a lot of time like finding all the little random things that you can make pop up and mm-hmm. the little in jokes that exist as you click on different things and make bad puns and stuff like that. Yeah. I, I never played all the, way through monkey island but but i the bit that i played was very enjoyable and played a few of the other lucas arts games all those have a you know great reputation for telling a fun story having great humor and yeah they don't quite make that type of game as much anymore there's uh one of the old lucas arts guys does now double fine studios but it's not certainly not as popular as they were in their heyday so what i i mean i think in popular culture we still think of video games as the new kid on the block it's not mm-hmm. <laughs> these have been around for a long time um so like with our, our popular entertainment you do start with things like dime novels and then you're going to transition into film and radio and television and comic books are you know within within that area uh and i think video games get thought of as the new kid on the block because it is after all that wave right it's mm-hmm. it's um early video games like the the earliest video games are really in the fifties, right? On the giant, like you need several rooms at a university size computers. Yeah, basically there were some mainframe games in the fifties. Um, 
I don't know much about those. I read a little bit on Wikipedia recently, and but home video games that were available to a more or less average person came about in the seventies, right? And that's still, I mean, I saw a tweet going around. It's like, time is weird. I think of the 70s as about 30 years ago and the 80s as about 20 <laughs> years ago. Uh, and, and it's very much not. And, and so video games actually, like even this home console version or, or uh, even those PC ones, like we're, we're heading into 40 years, you know, plus mm-hmm. of history of storytelling and, and advancements in this, in this media. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the technology has obviously changed and I feel like, uh, Somewhere in the, you know, and this is a me sticking my my finger to my tongue and sticking it in the <laughs> air, but somewhere around the Super Nintendo era, you know, the 16-bit era, a lot of the technical challenges were getting overcome, and uh, you know, the storytelling and the artistic uh, nature of video games were really able to shine through. Um, and then there was a little bit of, uh, especially artistically, maybe a fallback as we transition to 3D. And, you know, some of those things haven't aged very well. But once you get over some of those technical hurdles, um, I mean, it's really like it's, it's similar to uh, uh, their crafts. The people that make video games are craftsmen. You know, they're, we live in a capitalist society. They're all making money. All the, <laughs> For the vast majority of these, they're there to make money. Same as the film industry. But um, but as these technical hurdles are overcome, uh, the, the craftsmen can really hone their craft and create an interesting experience that's both beautiful and compelling narratively. And depending on what they're trying to do, you know, not all of them are going to have all those things, but the possibilities open up as technology advances. Yeah. And I think that's one really interesting side of this discussion because technology absolutely affects movies and even even comic book publishing like the printing technology that affects how comic books look through the years and what colors they're even able to use mm-hmm. um however th- that's a different technological change to storytelling than what we see in video games and even in film yeah there's the move from black and white to color and yes from uh, special effects change through the decades and you know now they're able to um not even use actual film <laughs> to, to to make films and those are all technological innovations but you can still go back and watch you know black and white films or even silent films that appreciate what's going on uh and, but if you go back and and uh play some of the earliest video games it just doesn't hold up the same way like old films hold up still i think I mean, it kind of depends on where you're going. I guess, I guess yeah. Because if you're if you're going to you know the 70s, that's probably true. But you could probably say the same thing going back films to you know the 20s. If you're looking mm-hmm. at the Lumiere brothers films and yeah. stuff like that, super early stuff, like it's interesting, <laughs> and some of them are beautiful. But but the workers leaving a factory that's not yeah. really going to engage the modern audience. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> where uh, one of the earliest films is literally they set up a camera and watched a uh, a shift change at a factory yeah. of all the workers leaving and all the workers going in. And this was like a very popular film because if you didn't live near a factory, you never saw anything like that before in your life. Yeah. And, and they used to, I mean, this is a little bit of a tangent, but they used to take their camera. It was both a camera and a projector, and they would uh, film the people as they were coming in and then show them themselves on the big screen, big screen as part of their exhibition. People were obviously blown away at the time because mm-hmm. that was unheard of. Yeah. And, and, and I was gonna say, I'm going to agree with what you're saying, though. Actually. I don't know where I'm, I'm take going back, with Well, that. no, I'm going to take back what I was saying about <laughs> video games not quite holding up as well because um, on the Nintendo Switch they have, uh, for like $20 a year, you get ac- uh, access to a library of original NES games. Mm-hmm. And my seven-year-old likes to go play the original Super Mario Brothers. So I guess they do hold up. Uh, but the kind of storytelling that's able to be told, that changes so drastically as you get open world games versus side-scrolling games. And you're able to, even like from side-scrolling games versus uh, like like Pong, right? Yeah. <laughs> like when you're moving from Pong to a side-scrolling Super Mario game, that's like a wildly different world that is now available to video game makers that was never available before. And it's because of this new technology. Yeah. And it's a little different than what's available to uh, filmmakers as they move from uh, black and white to color or from film to, you know, inside a computer digital filmmaking. Um, the, the kind of storytelling they're able to do is still somewhat similar. And now with video games, as, as these generations of consoles pass, there's like literally things that were unimaginable before are able to be done. Yeah. Um, I think what, where I was going with that earlier is like, like you said, that some of those things have held up very well. And there's now really pretty solid in an, uh, industry making retro style video games. Mm-hmm. Um, some video games that have the aesthetic of the old ones, um, you know, NES era or SNES era pixel art type stuff is, is pretty big. Um, 
But I guess where technology really helps there is it's now so much easier. One person can make an NES style game, you know, if a, a one capable person can do that, you know, in a matter of weeks or months, depending on the scope of the game. Whereas before it would, uh, it would be just uh, debugging and all that kind of stuff would take so much longer with the limitations before you can iterate so much faster mm-hmm. now. Anyway. Well, even uh, like my kids have the new Mario maker game and mm-hmm. they'll sit for half an hour and build a level and then say, Hey, dad, I, I built you a level uh, to go play. <laughs> and obviously like they're not having to do all the programming. They're not having yeah. to do everything, but the technology is there at a point where they get to build a Mario world yeah. uh, for someone else to go play it. And this is, um, I, I think as a note of where like the programming is, um, you know, they can build a side-scrolling Mario world, not the open world of Mario 64 or Mario Odyssey. You can, they, you know, they're at as my four-year-old, my seven-year-old can't go build those worlds, and that's not what that game is built to do. Yeah, uh, but it's still pretty amazing <laughs> that it's at that level that they can uh, build and you know drop in where all the villains are and build all the the you know the, the um, traps that you've got to jump through and everything. Yeah, it's a great democratization, similar I think to how digital film. I, I, yeah, digital movies has allowed for so many more people to tell their stories. That technology has allowed for so much more um, video game stories to be told and, and to be told really interestingly uh, by independent developers. Yeah, there's a cultural theorist named Henry Jenkins who writes wow. about convergence culture. And he was, yeah. he's talking about how like basically the computer has allowed for the convergence of the creation, the distribution, the consumption of media in a way that pre-1990s pretty much, uh, you know, before there was the internet and personal computers, that would have been impossible. But now anyone can make a movie and put it up on YouTube and anyone can consume it through YouTube. But before that, there was all these gatekeeping barriers to the creation of media and the sharing of media. And he's also very interested in video game storytelling. How Henry mm-hmm. Jenkins is one of the leading scholars in video game theory because um, he, he really embraces these these new waves of uh, popular entertainment. Yeah, he. Uh, I, I've read Convergence Culture. I went to a conference that he was at where we talked a lot about alternate reality and games. you said you didn't have academic credentials for this. <laughs> you would do a Henry Jenkins con- <laughs> conference. <laughs> did. Uh, um, there's some really interesting things you can do with technology now that I wasn't sure we would get into with this because we were talking about video games. But I feel like alternate reality games. Are you familiar with the concept of an alternate no, I'm reality not. game? No, I'm not. I mean, the best way to explain it is it's like a it's a big scavenger hunt that has pieces online and pieces in the real world. Pokemon Go. Okay. Uh, well, that's that's, that's augmented a little different. Reality, right? Yeah, that's that augmented. Reality. Yeah. Sorry. The, yeah. This is. Uh, I think that it was kind of a. Maybe not as popular anymore. I haven't kept up with the history of them as much. But there was a big one for the launch of Halo 2 to build marketing buzz. It's a game called I Love Bees where they ended up like calling payphones all over and people had to go, first of all, solve the clues to figure out where the payphones were, when they were going to be called, and had to show up and answer the payphone, record uh, or record somehow or, or you know get the message from there and report back to all the other people online. And so it's, it's this kind of weird mix of it's not necessarily a video game in a traditional sense sense but it's happening sort of like a multiplayer video game where these people are working together but they also have to go out in the real world and find these things and um it's it's a you know henry jenkins writes about it in convergence <laughs> culture a little bit and and uh how all those things kind of come together to allow us to tell a story that it's experienced collectively in a way that really nothing else can touch mm-hmm. um i mean yeah, it's different. Yeah. <laughs> right, okay, let's let's start digging into some of what video games do differently than these other modes of storytelling, which I think everyone is, is more familiar with. Uh-huh. Um, so storytelling in video games, early on, a lot of video games are more like um, kind of like mini game oriented, like Pong. You know, you're ba- balancing paddles back and forth. Early Atari games, it's, you know, shoot the alien spaceship, that you know, mm-hmm. that kind of game with a pretty basic mission. Where, where do you think we start to see more narrative storytelling than instead of like basic repetitive actions in video games. I mean, uh, the, the first I think is probably a game called adventure, uh, or Zork, both text-based adventure games. Adventure started out in the mainframes. It was in the late sixties, but it, I mean, it's, it's like you have a computer terminal and it would tell you, you know, you're in a dark cave and you have to type in stuff. I want to, you know, check the South wall. Or this one gets like discussed in ready player one, doesn't it? I haven't seen Ready Player One, but it's it's very possible. Uh, I think it's in the novel. In the novel, not in the movie. Oh. I think. Oh, I haven't yeah. read it either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no, <it's> <laughs> um, but uh, so, uh, adventure or cave adventure? I think it 
there's different iterations of it with different names, but that kind of started. And then Zork improved on it a lot and was on the home computers at the time. I think that's probably where most people would trace the real narrative storytelling. And mm-hmm. it's and it, you do kind of experience it in your own way. It's a little bit nonlinear. I think aside from those kind of text-based uh, adventure games, though, we get into a little bit more narrative storytelling with some of the games on the NES. And then it really evolves in the Super Nintendo where they just have more space on the car. I mean, you think about... For example, uh, the original Mario and the original Zelda, both of them basically have a, you know, there's a hero and, and he has to princess. save the princess. <laughs> yeah. And then you go play the game to do the thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, you start to get a little bit more uh, more involved narratively, especially with the, I think, the Super Nintendo era RPGs, which just are not really in my wheelhouse as far as gameplay goes. So I haven't played a lot of them, but I know games like Chrono Trigger had really interesting things where depending on what decisions you make in the game, it affects the outcome and there's a branching structure. So sort of like the choose your own adventure books. Mm -hmm. Um, But like you mentioned earlier, a lot more, a lot more organic. It doesn't, you know, have to like force yourself to turn the pages. It all lays out for itself um, as you play the game. And so uh, that's, uh, I mean, Yes, in like the original Super Mario, the player is engaged in what's going to happen. They choose to smash the Goomba or run past it, but mm-hmm. they're not really affecting the story outcome. Like they've got a, a challenge in front of them, and and how they solve the challenge is going to be dependent on their skill level and uh, whether they're going for time or whether they're going for to get collect the most coins or to kill all the villains, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but really, it's you get to the end of the level, you jump on the flagpole, no matter what you do. <laughs> that, that, that's all there is. Uh, but you're saying with some of these Super Nintendo games, that's where you start to see actual like branching transformation based on the choices of of the game player. Yeah, and like like I said, I think there was some of that in Zork and some of the earlier games. Mm-hmm. But I think where we started to see it more is probably with the role playing games RPGs um, in the Super Nintendo era. And then, you know, thing, I think predominantly the linear narrative is still the big one. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, and in a lot of ways is, is not that interesting. One of the things I wanted to talk about is kind of the illusion of being, having agency or being agentive in a video game. Uh, because like, just like you said, Super Mario, uh, you, you can, you can change your play style, but really, you're you're doing if you're looking at the narrative you're you're doing only a little bit more than turning the page you know mm-hmm. uh similar how you could read the the end of the book first if you wanted to um right. you could do things a little bit differently in the video game but you know but the, part of the difference is you feel like you're doing something and whether that's yeah a they, good or a bad thing uh, yeah I, and i think <laughs> um like one of the knocks against a lot of pop popular entertainment is that oh it's so passive like uh, and you can be very passive and watch a movie you can be very passive and um and watch television you have to be a little less passive to be reading a book or reading a comic book but it still can be pretty passive to be to be playing a video game you have to be an active participant <laughs> in a way yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but it's not especially early on like you're still within some pretty tight constraints as to what it is you're able to do but nothing's going to happen unless you're doing something with video games definitely um but uh one example i wanted to talk about with this concept have you heard of the game bioshock i've heard of it but i have not played it i've had students turn in papers on it oh really yeah okay (laughs) um so for for listeners that maybe don't know it it's uh probably about 10 years old uh, some sometime it came out on the PlayStation 3 and the Xbox 360 and PC about that time. It's a first-person shooter, so you you know you take you, your view is from the 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 view of the the person in the game, and there's a lot of shooting involved. There's some other mechanics too. The setting is um, in a sort of underwater civilization in the 60s that's kind of dilapidated and falling apart, and you have the player works his way through. Um, uh, or I guess the the player could be a her. The character is a he, but mm-hmm. works way through uh, through this civilization, and along the way has these radio communications with somebody who uh, is led to believe is helping him, um, telling him what to do to to be able to get out of this place and and you know save himself. Um, 
and then you get to the end. The, the, I guess this is spoiler territory. We didn't have that since we're not talking about one specific game. Yeah. If you uh, if you plan to play Bioshock, maybe skip the next couple minutes or something. <laughs> is, isn't that one like over fifty hours of gameplay? <laughs> I don't think so. Oh. I, I, it's been a while since I played it. But or maybe that's I, one of the newer versions because I, I haven't there multiple. There's there's three yeah. main Bioshock games. And I've only played but the first one. One of my students was oh, I remember like a fifty hour. They talked about the to if you're going straight through, it's fifty hours of gameplay or something like that. But maybe it's maybe. a different. Maybe that's a different game too. I want to say I hope I well no, not that I hope I didn't. <laughs> I don't remember playing Bioshock for fifty hours. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so you you work. You, there's these radio communications. He keeps telling you go and do this next thing, sort of like jumping on the flagpole. But you you know you're doing it yourself. You have to. You know, there's various ways you have to think out of outside of the box to defeat you know large groups of enemies, and you can make some choices about the the skills that your character develops along the way. So it feels like you're being a little bit more um, a de- of a decision maker. Um, and then you get to the end, <clears throat> and it's revealed that um, as as these radio communications came in, every time he asks you to do something, he would say, "Would you kindly?" go to this section of the city and, you know, blow up this power box or what, I don't remember the specific objectives, but um, probably didn't notice as you were playing. I didn't notice as I was playing every time there was a new objective, he would say, would you kindly do this? It's revealed that in the universe of the game, uh, your character has been brainwashed to, to respond uh, affirmatively to would you kindly as like, you're now you have to do that, and so the but, character. But as the players, like you don't feel like you have any other choice. This no. is just the next thing you do in a video game. And, and and like many games, it's made to feel like you're going the way that you want to go. But really, the game, you know, there's closed walls and locked doors with nothing on the other side, and really, it's forcing you along. And all of a sudden, you realize that not only. It, this is happening in the gameplay world too, that I'm being forced along this path that I didn't really realize. I thought I was doing my own thing, but really they were making me do this thing. Uh-huh. And then the, um, so this character that you interact with at the end of the game, he says, uh, a man chooses a slave obeys. And then, um, he says he, he actually says, would you kindly, kill me or I don't remember the exact thing but he forces you to kill him there's another boss battle after that but sort of the the thing that I think stuck with a lot of players stuck with me is that you realize that this is what like a lot of these games do they you know they make you feel like you're experiencing this thing and there's something about interacting with the story that makes you feel like a part of it I mean I guess it's probably similar to a lot of people's learning styles you know you can learn by listening you can learn by reading a lot of people say, I, I tend to agree, you learn best by doing. Um, mm-hmm. And so something about doing that interaction, participating in the gameplay, makes you feel like you're making this, this decision. And then this game slaps you in the face like, nope, you're my slave. <laughs> you've, you've, you obeyed the whole way. You yeah, did the, exactly what I wanted you to do. <laughs> even as we, um, you know, with the expanded worlds of video games, the players have more options on what they do. It's You can still only do what's been programmed or, you know, within it. Like, I remember reading reviews of the Nintendo 64 when that one was coming out, and that, um, at least my memory is, was when they really introduced open worlds where you can go do whatever you want. And I remember reading two different reviews that said, if you want to go climb a tree, you can just go climb a tree. And that was the first thing I did when I got this Mario 64. Mario 64? Yeah, it was, yeah. It was go climb a tree, which um, before that, all I had played for Mario was basically side-scrolling, you know, where you can go forward or backwards and jump up and down. Uh, but you're very controlled within the world. And with Mario 64, you could just go walk wherever you wanted. However... To progress in the game, there were still tasks you had to do. The order in which you did them got to be more variable in that and other future Mario games. Like I've, um, I did that one. I don't think I ever played any of the, like the Mario Sunshine. Like I never really did that one or whatever the one on the Wii was. I can't remember Mario Galaxy. Yeah, I never really played that one as much. But I've done with my kids. I've played all of Mario Odyssey, mm-hmm. um, which is extremely open ended in the order in which you do stuff. But still, there's tasks you got to do. Yeah. Um, and and so it's like you say, it's it's this really interesting mix of um, go make your own choices and do whatever you want within the constraints of what has been programmed for you to be able to do in this game. I guess uh, the the most interesting ones to me, or maybe one example of a very interesting one to me, is a game called Daisy. Now, I probably should say, we, we just talked about a shooter in Bioshock. This is, I know, a family-friendly friendly <laughs> podcast. 
Uh, some of the members of younger members of your family should probably not play Bioshock or Daisy. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Daisy is, uh, it's a multiplayer game and it's, as you may, uh, surmise from the name, it's a zombie, uh, so post-apocalyptic it's, it's zombie. It's not the flower, Daisy. It is day, <laughs> day Z. letter Z. Yeah. Or day Z, <laughs> I've heard Canadians call it. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, day, letter Z. And, uh, you're, you're dropped into this, uh, I don't know. I don't remember exactly how big, I think it's like something like a hundred square kilometers is the map. It's gigantic. And you're there with only a couple other people up to, you know, maybe 70 people. But even still, you're talking over a square kilometer for each individual person. There's not tons of interaction between the players. There is zombies, non-player character zombies. um, And when you drop in, you have nothing. Um, And you have to go, like, sort through these. You go go find a town, um, you know, find some pants. Find find a can of beans that so you can literally eat so you don't die. Yeah, <laughs> uh, there are like there there's there's guns, there's ammo, there's trucks. Um, people that sometimes play it together will coordinate. They say they'll say, "Okay, I dropped in here. I don't have a map yet, but this is what I can see." And you know, their friend that they're talking with because they can have communications outside of the game will say, "Okay, this is what I can see," and then they find a map and they can meet up with together. So, you, and then there also is. Um, there's chat in the game, so of course, you know when you're when you're pro- when you have proximity to somebody, you're close to them, you can talk to them in the in the world. But it's sort of like a Wild West type environment where it's like there's there's good interactions with players, and there's players that just want to cause grief, and uh, it, it's really actually kind of fun for me. And then I guess we're getting to the other kind of storytelling to Google. Daisy stories because you just read these people that have these interactions with this game as as you can probably guess from the way I described the game there's a big barrier to entry like you mm-hmm. have to learn a lot about this game it's it's hard to get into I played it once for a little while and it wasn't a great experience for me but I know that there are some people that have really interesting experience with it because it is so open-ended there's stories about people like oh you know I, I ran into these people in the forest I told them I, I put my gun away and said I'm friendly I put my hands up you know or whatever and they uh, you know then they like traded some things and then you know find out come come to find out later that they snuck up behind them. they basically hunted them after that and then like um and then there's the opposite side where it's like i ran into these people i i couldn't communicate with them because they were from another country they spoke a different language i thought they were going to kill me i had nothing but they gave me some food and, and a weapon and then we parted ways you know now, this is um <laughs> like wait, wait this level we're talking about are the massively multiplayer online yes games, this right? is a massive well this is i don't know if this would qualify as massively, massively multiplayer but, it but, is a multiplayer game but though. the people you're talking about interacting with these are not like uh things that have been programmed on the computer mm-hmm. this is other players that are online at the same time in yeah. this world and the the game may have set up limitations on how these interactions are going to go but the game is not dictating what these interactions are exactly and so that that's that's what's uh i said it's kind of interesting to me just like i said i i don't quite have the time and the patience to really get into the game but it, it fascinates me that people are basically creating these narratives like experiencing what you would experience it watching a zombie movie except that they're dictating what happens mm-hmm. you know no it's not scripted or anything and they're actually experiencing in a game form what yeah. what um this type of situation would be like without a game designer scripting it mm-hmm. without any, um, you know, and any contact other than, you know, the proximity they have to the other people in the game and essentially are creating these stories from nothing within the sandbox. I mean, that's what a lot, some of these games, they call them sandbox games when they have more open-ended, less structured story. That's kind of the flip side to the fake agency of a game like Bioshock or most narrative games where it leads you down the, down mm-hmm. the way exact opposite of that are these sandbox games that you know are usually have a little bit harder a little bit bigger barrier to entry they're harder to get into but can be really rewarding and interesting in that literally everyone's experience like is completely different it's not just that you solved the puzzle in a different way or you went a slight you know you climbed the tree in a different order in mario or you got the stars in a different order you actually have like a absolutely completely different time even when you play it every single time so uh like like with with mario like as simplistic as it is there is a narrative that the the creators of the game are in charge of that they have said okay 
Mario's going to try and rec- rescue Princess Peach, right? That's that's the basic premise of most Mario games um, that are out there. And Bowser's the big bad. How you go about that, uh, they may allow, depending on um, the level of hardware within the different systems, they're able to allow uh, greater or lesser degrees of variability and how that's going to be accomplished. But in these sandbox games that you're talking about, they're more building a world, and then it's like, go have fun yeah. <laughs> uh, within there. And, and the constraints are still going to be somewhat technological, like what are they able to render at what rate, uh, what connectivity speed do players have to have to be able to get in there. But the players are still um, much more agentive, and then because they're coming across other people who are their own agents and what they want to do the the uh the the end result or what you need to do to succeed is not dictated by the programmers anymore there may not even be a success condition right it's just it's come, open-ended i mean come live in a zombie apocalypse yeah. and see what that would be like for a little while minecraft <laughs> is another great example of a sandbox game that again i've only played a little bit um in my limited free time i tend to prefer the slightly more linear narrative games but um, I think it's it, Minecraft is super cool that, that it allows people and, and it's catered to children to make a world, to, to build these really cool things. Again, usually without a success condition, there's different mm-hmm. modes that, you know, there's story mode and survival mode, but there's also open-ended modes where, you know, you can interact with the other people on your server however you want. You can build things together. You could, you know, do whatever you want <laughs> <laughs> and, and construct your own story, which is, uh, that that's i think the most unique thing is you you can't really i guess i mean you can write your own book you can make your own movie mm-hmm. um but for a consumer usually uh with with entertainment you're being given a product yeah. and even in uh, in a lot in a lot of these video games the the player is key to telling the story but what the story is has has been set out mm-hmm. uh and Technology has now at a at an advanced enough level that uh, creators can create these worlds where the story isn't told yet, and quite literally, the players decide what the story is going to be, um, or they have to interact with other players who are deciding their own story, and that those those different agencies can become points of friction. <laughs> you know, like uh, one player is choosing to be a bad guy in this world and um, other players are, are like trying to find communities or subcultures. And I know like within particularly like the, the MMORPGs, right? The, the mm-hmm. massively uh, multiplayer online games, certainly like friend groups and subgroups get formed that become like a social network uh, w- within the games um, that they that don't exist outside of the world of gameplay. Yeah. The uh, massive, the massively multiplayer ones are also interesting. A lot of those do kind of have uh, some, uh, some direction in the story. You think of like the world of Warcraft is probably the best known example. And yeah, it's, it's the most famous um, one that I, I can think of. But there, even though there is, uh, you know, a, a larger narrative that's being crafted by the game designers, there's still, is more interaction with players that allows you to to do interesting things that you know wouldn't happen otherwise without the combination of having other players there and a more sandboxy environment to do it in. Now, how how that ties in as far as like a narrative structure, it's hard to relate that to other stories, but it's still something that people experience. Um, I mean, we're all we're as humans, we're we're story-based creatures. I don't know the right way to point that. We, we, we all, crave we, stories. We crave stories. Yeah. And so that's a good way to put it. Um, and, and we that, create stories where maybe there isn't really any there, but we create it to give meaning. Like yeah. a story structure is something that we use to understand the world. Yeah. And so I think those are really interesting in that, like you said earlier, as a consumer, as a consumer of media, the video games, those open-end video games are really the only place I can think of where you really can create your own story like that. Um, You noted earlier, like there is a greater barrier to entry to some of these games versus others. And uh, I think it's going to vary as to what kind of commitment a player wants to make, um, what kind of commitment they are able to make in terms of time and money. Cause a lot of the, like um, a lot of the online games, it's not by the disc and you're there. It's, you got to be paying a monthly subscription uh, to be able to access it. Um, so there's, there's different financial implications and there's different time uh, allotment that's there, which uh, kind of like you for me, um, like, I don't know how often I'm going to be able to go to a video game. So one that's kind of a linear self-contained story that I can just advance 15 minutes of and save 
Like that, that's hit the sweet spot for me versus ones where it's like, I got to coordinate the schedule of my 15 friends who are in a group together that we're going to go play. Um, and, uh, we're, we, you know, it's going to be open-ended as to how long we're able to play for and all that. Like I haven't been able to make that kind of commitment. It's something that intrigues me. I just haven't been able to. Yeah. Um, and so I'm not as familiar with those worlds. Um, but w- do you think these are, um, I, I, I guess, what what do you think the different audiences are getting out of these different kinds of video games? I guess is is kind of what I'm thinking about because I think at a certain point we still label these all video games, but the umbrella of what a video game in it is has gotten very broad. It's very broad. I mean, I, at this point, you I think more people play video games than even realize they're playing video games with know? apps on phones. Apps on exactly, and that's the biggest place. Or like. Um, like the Facebook games, that mm-hmm. ca- they, those got really big. And so for a little while there, yeah, they, <laughs> yeah. they, were, they were taking over my Facebook feed when yeah. people had really, didn't realize they hadn't turned off notifications. <laughs> <laughs> so I found out who was harvesting, you know, their, their, their crop and, and whatever the farm one was. Or whatever. Yeah. I mean, those are games that, uh, you know, that certain crowd of quote unquote hardcore gamers would say, those aren't real games. You're not a real gamer. And people that are playing them would probably say, I'm not a gamer. And yet, and yet <laughs> there you are playing an electronic game, you know, solitaire, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, or Minesweeper back Minesweeper, in the day. <laughs> like, uh, even if it's you know, Minesweeper, I feel like is a little bit more of a pure video game where there's not really an analog equivalent solitaire. I mean, you can play solitaire with cards. Most people, I feel like now their interaction with solitaire is electronic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, yeah. But anyway, I guess where I'm going with that is that you, they're pretty ubiquitous. I I think that most people, even if they think they don't like video games, there probably are some video games they do like. Maybe they're not the narrative variety, but there still is, you know, even if it's just a simple diversion like Minecraft that you're probably not constructing a narrative out of, there's something there for people to enjoy for a short amount of time, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. Then obviously there's a huge scale. Yeah, <laughs> from there, from the starting point of I play no video games. Whatever to... came loaded on my phone is my video game. <laughs> yeah. To I'm investing in equipment and hardware for for faster computers. Some of these, uh-huh. like okay, you said we talked about this when we were playing. Um, what is the system called? Oculus. Oh uh, yeah, the Oculus. Yeah, which uh, I have a neighbor who has Oculus. You have Oculus as mm-hmm. well, and so I'm able to go and play, which is an immersive VR one where you got you got to put on the goggles. You've got handsets that you're holding, and when you're looking at it it looks like the motions that you do with your hands and the handsets are what yeah. you see through the goggles um but that requires a certain level of hardware to even be able to be considered as well as cameras that are pointed at you from around the room so that the game is reading the sensors that are all around you and so that's a huge barrier of entry yes. <laughs> um uh in, in terms of what before you even begin to play a game what you have to own i, I think vr right now is probably uh sim- in the similar realm as far as barrier to entry goes as probably the early the, like the 70s computers that, that had the early home games on them were where it's like if you're not an enthusiast you're probably not going to be playing you know video games in the 70s if you're not an enthusiast you're probably not going to play VR games in 2019. Yeah, so you know, it's not for the casual gamer. <laughs> but, I, and, and I don't think VR will replace other games either. This is you know, kind of a, a separate topic, but I think it will be something that sticks around. The barrier to entry will shrink. Mm-hmm. Um, Oculus actually has a new headset that is completely self-contained, doesn't have cameras, and still works really well. It doesn't have quite as good of graphics as you know the, the headset that's tethered to a computer, but you can play some really cool VR games without the huge setup, and you know without having to buy the computer. It's still four hundred dollars, so it's you know it's the barrier, <laughs> the financial uh, barrier entry is is still there to an extent. But, but, but I think it's, that's it's actually, coming down. That's a pretty basic price point barrier to entry to get a console if you're doing mm-hmm. console gaming to get a console in a couple games it will be between two and five hundred dollars yeah right it's, it's not outrageous but but again it's kind of where it's kind of where consoles were before whereas you know general gaming you know everybody has a phone even though it costs money like you can ha- you can buy a you're pre- not buying it for the gaming yeah. so it feels like a different cost and i think virtual reality may get to a similar point at some point in the future probably not in the next decade but mm-hmm. I, I, and that opens up a whole another realm of, of video game storytelling um one video game one uh vr game that uh i had a lot of fun with um 
It's called Batman Arkham VR. Now, I know the Batman Arkham series is very popular. I haven't yes. played it, um, but I've certainly seen many news articles about it or so, entertainment website articles about it. I mean, yeah, I guess backtracking to the other Arkham games, they're, they're like third-person games where you control Batman. Um, they're just really well done technically to where they feel really fluid. They make you they they make you feel like you're Batman more than any other thing that I've ever experienced. You know, I I I'm not uh, like a diehard Batman fan, but you know, I I really lo- I love love the Batman movies. You know, I've read the big graphic novels, Year One and uh, the is it the Dark Knight, the Dark Knight, Dark Knight, Dark, Dark Knight Returns, Dark Knight Returns. Yeah, and, yeah. So I've read some of the big ones, um, which were great, but there's something about controlling batman in a way that makes you feel like oh batman <laughs> there's is a different powerful. thrill there's a different thrill and then you put vr in the mix which vr at this point you don't really get the combat part of what makes the arkham games fun is that the you know being surrounded by a group of 12 thugs and being mm-hmm. able to you know roll over one and punch the other one in the face is feels really good that's not happening in vr that's not happening in <laughs> vr right now but the detective part happens in VR so much better where you actually you, you're in a room and you get to like crouch around and look for the clues and, and it almost feels part, like um the get out rooms. You yeah know, that it, kind of it, thing. It is know. similar to the the an escape room. Yeah. Um but except that you get to use the the special Batman detective vision that like <laughs> zooms in and enhances <laughs> stuff and uh and doing that yourself uh, something about the mechanics of playing and I mentioned this earlier, you know, the the way of learning by doing uh, it gives it a different feeling that mm-hmm. makes you feel even more connected to to that character and that story. Yeah, and, and like um, with Zelda games, like I always enjoy the puzzle rooms, but the idea of doing a puzzle room where you're in that VR world and you actually feel like you're walking around <laughs> in it and you're you're picking up the objects to look for things instead of you know moving the camera around, which is what you do in a lot of Zelda games now, uh-huh. is like change the camera angle, but to actually like swivel your head and have everything move in a VR world to, to solve a puzzle. Um, that's a, a kind of gameplay I enjoy on consoles that I think would translate very well into the VR version of games. Whereas like fighting, I don't know that's going to translate quite as well into the VR. Yeah, they. That's one of those things that we'll. we'll I mean, maybe see technologically it will get there. <laughs> there. There's a pretty interesting game called Super Hot um, that has a VR version where there's all bad guys coming at you, but time only moves when you do, and so it's a. It, they, you know, they can shoot a bullet at you, but if you hold still, it doesn't come at you. And then the faster you move, the faster time goes. And so you can kind of see the things coming at you and adjust your movements. And it, so it feels sort of like a slow motion matrixy type experience where, you know, there's bad guys if coming at you. If you do a slow motion dodge, their fist is coming at you slower. So you can really yeah. think about where you want to be, uh-huh. <laughs> with, uh, you know, as it's coming at you. And it makes you feel like Neo in the Matrix where it's like, oh... I know Kung Fu. (laughs) (laughs) So there's, I I mean, I guess as technology continues to evolve, we, we probably are not properly anticipating what video games are going to look like in 15, 20 years. I think Uh, that's probably accurate. Yeah. um, Because I remember how groundbreaking it was when you got the Wii controller. Mm -hmm. And now that is like the base level expectation for video game systems is that there's going to be motion sensor. I, I mean, to a degree, we all assumed that was happening. Like when we were playing Nintendo 64 Mario Kart, everyone leaned with, with <laughs> yeah. their remote control when they were turning to try and get a little extra, even though it made no difference then. Yeah. And when the Wii remote control came out and there was motion sensor for what you were doing, that that felt like, oh, this is the new revolution of of gameplay. Um, but even now that has become like just the standard that you, that you come to expect. And this is what happens with every like revolution of technology is, well, now that's the baseline. Eventually that becomes the new norm. Mm-hmm. And... Video game, I mean, computer technology in general and video games uh, as, as a means of storytelling, that's going to happen so rapidly um, that we're not going to recognize what the cutting edge of video games are. In 10 years, like, it's going to be so different than what our accepted norms are right now. And I don't think a lot of these changes will necessarily completely supplant the old norms. Oh, no, I would expect there'll still be console yeah, play. and Yeah, playing with a controller, I think, is still going to be popular for as long as we anybody can think about it you know although there will be other motion controls and vr controls and things like that it's more like these things are going to just add on as more options and you know and some people won't be a fan of one will be a fan of the other and you know and 
yeah, technology just is going to keep giving us more and more options. Yeah, it's, it's interesting in popular culture, there's the process called fractionalization as like audiences become more niche, but more dedicated mm -hmm. to the things that they like. Um, and they seek less broad appeal. Um, often we see that with genre storytelling. We're like, okay, now this genre is just targeting this particular audience. With video games, I think it's gonna be like the even the style of what video game play you do is going to get more fractionalized as more options come to exist because of the evolution and the advancement of technology. Mm -hmm. um, like I, I'm sure there are people who, when they hear the discussion of like Oculus and VR, they're like, well, that one's not for me. And, and that's fine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, it, it, it doesn't have to be uh, for everyone, but I, I think there'll be just even more things that come out where it's like, okay, well, I, I've got to kind of choose which one I'm going to pursue because there will always be a cost and time barrier to engaging with these. Yeah. Well, John, thank you for coming on to talk about some narrative storytelling. Can I do, can I talk about one other thing? Yes, please. So there was, there was one other thing. I mean, um, so I guess most of the other examples we've talked about are sort of thought about as traditional video games. Um, they usually involve some kind of fighting or, you know, maybe there's puzzle solving or th something, but, um, I, if we go back to fighting the stigma, I wanted to bring up one really interesting game I played a couple years ago called that dragon cancer. Have you heard of that game? I'm, I'm not familiar with this one. So this is a, this is a really interesting, powerful game. Um, it was made, uh, Mostly by one guy, he had he had a, some small studio help. He did a Kickstarter to raise money for it. The backstory is he and his wife, um, they had three boys, I think. The youngest one um, was diagnosed with brain cancer, fought it for several years, but ended up dying, succumbing to the brain cancer. And one of the ways that the father wanted to honor his son and I think probably process some of his emotions himself was to make a game about their experience as a family. Um, and it's not, it's not really a lot of gameplay that, you know, that the typical gamer would think, oh, this is cool. But, um, it's really more of kind of like a surreal video game autobiography. You know, there's a level where, uh, all the characters are kind of like, um, lo-fi polygon models, kind of like if you think back to like the early 3D graphics where there's not very many textures. So it's not like a, it's that was an artistic choice they made to I think probably make it. You guys talked about I think with bone where like mm -hmm. the 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 more bare bones it is the easier it is to project yourself onto this thing. Yeah, it's a Scott McCloud gets into that in his understanding comics about yeah, uh, which is really about visual visual aesthetics in some chapters more than comic book storytelling. But the the more specific an image is to an individual, the less anyone can mm -hmm. everyone can relate to it, and the more generalized like he goes down to like just the simple smiley space where you get yeah. a circle two dots and a line underneath it anyone can see themselves in that <laughs> you know that's an avatar for human yeah. not for one person but a photograph is an avatar for one person yeah so even though this is sort of an autobiographical narrative non-fiction they made these characters look kind of like low polygon mannequins um i think so you could project yourself onto it um, but you go through these levels. One of them is, is you know, kind of early on after the diagnosis, the family's at the duck pond and you help the kids feed the, the ducks the bread. Throughout the game, there's um, there's audio that you hear that some of it, I think, they, they actually recorded, you know, is taken from their home videos or things like that. Some of it, I think, was reperformed. But you go through this family's experience as their son fights cancer. And it is, uh, I mean, it's heartbreaking in a way that I don't think, uh, you know, reading a memoir or watching a documentary, I mean, short of experiencing it yourself, which, you know, I hope I never have yes, to. And no, no, no one wants to have that yeah. experience. Um, and I, I ugly cried myself through <laughs> the last hour of this game, uh -huh. um, having a young family myself. But I came out of it not necessarily thinking, you know, like, oh, I, I don't ever want to touch it again, you know. <laughs> but I, I came out of it having so much more empathy for uh, people who experience cancer themselves or especially have a child that experiences cancer. And I think uh, playing the game, I guess one other example, they there's a level where you're in the hospital room and the, the baby is crying and... Um, the, the game tries to guide you along similar to, you know, leading you along with your fake agency, you know, push X to hold the baby, push X to rock the baby, things like that, you know, and none of it works. You, you're just and, it, and it's a it's a matter of minutes in the game, but it feels longer because you're experiencing it. 
And then, you know, eventually, uh, and this is, you know, the, the creator's uh, belief system, but eventually the last thing that the game allows you to do is push X to pray. And that's eventually what gets the baby to stop crying. And it's like, man, even, even if that's not your belief system, like, you know, that that's what this father went through. And, uh, again, I don't think reading or watching a documentary would, would convey that in the same way as, uh, experiencing it through trying to do it, you know, even if it's with a controller or a keyboard or mouse, something about experiencing that just, uh, helps you empathize with, with that struggle so much more. Because video games give us that feeling of being in control. And this video game is about control being taken away right from, from this family. And, but you are in there participating and you feel like you should be in control, but Mm -hmm. the video game is saying no, which is what this family's experience was. Yeah. It sounds like a very effective with an A effective (laughs) type of storytelling that, like you said, it's just, um, it's not saying that video game storytelling is, is better than film or novels or comic books. It's just different. And this is one person who found a very different, uh, story to tell than is what we expect or associate with the video game genre, but it, that it, it um, managed to connect in a way that no other medium of storytelling would have allowed. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's, it's just something I wanted to make sure to bring up that, you know, video games aren't just all about either shoot them up, shoot them up, puzzle solving, puzzle solving. <laughs> the, the, uh, we talked a little bit about the, the democratization of technology that it's allowing people to tell these really compelling, important stories that, that need to be told and in some ways can't be told in the same way in other mediums. Well, thank you, John, for coming on. I really enjoyed this discussion. I feel like we've barely scratched the surface of storytelling in yeah. video games. but uh, <laughs> It's a big topic. But I feel more informed <laughs> by what you were able to share with me. Hopefully, listeners, you have a similar experience to that. Now, John, you're a first-time guest on the Protagonist Podcast, and we always like to ask the dinner guest question to our first-time guests. If you could have a dinner party with any three to five fictional characters, who would you want to hang out with and why? Um, I have to confess, I've been a long-time listener to the podcast. My initial answer to this question was uh, Wolverine, Rorschach, and Batman. (laughs) (laughs) That's a very similar grouping. Yeah, which I quickly realized all those characters are very similar and would be terrible dinner guests. Well, yeah, that would not be an enjoyable dinner party. There'd be a lot of brooding and sidelong advances and probably some violence at a certain point. Yeah. So as I I knew I was coming on, I thought about it a little bit more seriously. well, I guess we're we're talking about video games. I figured I thought I had to pick one a character from a video game. Um the character that I chose is the from a video game is the narrator from the myth the Fallen Lords series. Um those are a group of strategy games. They take place in a sort of uh Lord of the Rings style high fantasy world. And every level there's a narrator that reads a journal entry about what's going on in the world. And he he basically is a soldier in this army that gets to see the world go from a thriving civilization to the brink of destruction thanks to this giant undead army. And I just think that narrator has some stories to tell uh, and would be really cool to have around. <laughs> um, I think this is the first time we've had a narrator chosen, but I kind of like the choice a lot. Yeah. Because uh, I feel like a lot of uh, uh, narrators have... have a life that we just don't see <laughs> in the stories that they're, they're uh, telling us. <laughs> yeah. So I like him. And then I think that uh, because he's seen some crazy supernatural things, um, I think he would uh, have something to talk about with good old Jack Burton from Big Trouble in Little China. <laughs> I wish Todd was here right now to give us his iconic Jack Burton imitation. <laughs> yeah, I, I had to throw that one in there because I still love that movie. For those that don't know or have listened, I, I suggested they talk about Big Trouble in Little China as well. So uh, Jack Burton is a truck driver that, you know, has a... Crazy adventure. Yeah, crazy. Really crazy adventure. Crazy adventure that he's mostly just kind of a sidekick for. He attends. <laughs> <laughs> but the whole time he feels like he's doing something. Yes. And, he... and I'm sure he talks a big game afterwards, too. Oh, when he retells this story, <laughs> he was the protagonist of of uh, everything that happened. He was the instigator and uh, the resolver of everything. But when you watch the movie, you realize the, the great fun for me of the movie is Kurt Russell carries himself like he is the action hero, but he has no idea what's going on. Yep. <laughs> and and uh, the story's happening to him, not the other way around. <laughs> Definitely. And and I like his humor. And, uh, and so we go from, you know, kind of serious, but experience some things to 
comedy has experienced some things. And he bridges the gap to my final dinner guest, Liz Lemon from 30 Rock, <laughs> who uh, I think... Given her experience with, uh, if you're familiar with 30 Rock, she has a really terrible ex-boyfriend named Dennis. I think that Kurt Russell or uh, Jack Burton may try to hit on Liz Lemon, but I think she's she would have some funny banter with him, shutting him down, and uh, would know and, how to handle it. And I think, uh, <laughs> I haven't watched all of 30 Rock, but I've seen some. It's, I think Liz Lemon is, is a character we should we should talk about, mostly, well, in part because I love alliterative names. I always like <laughs> my characters who, who have it. But... Uh, I think in her banter, we or you seeing it happen would understand what was exactly exactly what was going on. But uh, Jack Burton would think he was being flirted with. <laughs> yeah, he'd be he'd be a little unaware uh-huh. uh, that he was being put in this place. But you would really appreciate the deafness with which she was doing that. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's my uh, three person dinner party. Well, uh, I appreciate that. That is a fun grouping. I think I, I said I don't think we've had a narrator. Now I wonder if someone had chose death from the book Thief once. That's a po- it's kind of ringing a bell that maybe we did have one other narrator uh, that's that's been chosen. That's going to wrap up this episode. Thank you for joining us, listeners. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to The Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We would like to thank Nick English, who designed our logo, and Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to go check out episode number 162, when we talked about fan fiction as a storytelling style, or episode number 178, when we played a fun game with anime storytelling. You can reach us by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com or else on Twitter. You can follow at protagonistpod and at jdorowski. And our producer, Andrew, is at dizminute. And our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. Thank you, John, for coming on this episode. Is there anything you want to plug at all? Um, I don't do much social media. I am on Twitter at J to the bell, J-T-O-T-H-E-B-E-L-L. <laughs> also, that same, uh, same handle on GitHub. If there's any coders out there, you can check out my open source projects there. You were definitely the right person to have come on to talk about (laughs) video game storytelling. Thank you very much for bringing your expertise here to this episode, John. And thank you, listeners, for downloading this episode. And next week, we'll be back to discuss another great character and a great story. So long. Oh dear, Andrew, I didn't put in. <laughs> I didn't put in the episodes. Hold on, let me go look up real quick on the on the episode list.